0: Wednesday, November 17th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, Recent events have the house rocking on its foundations. Owing to an outbreak of daverium at Bebbs, she won't be allowed to come in contact with us for six weeks. Without her, the cooking and shopping will be very difficult, not to mention how much we'll miss her company. Mr Clayman is still in bed and has eaten nothing but gruel for three weeks. Mr. Kugler is up to his neck in work. Margaret sends her Latin lessons to a teacher, who corrects and then returns them. She's registered under Beb's name. The teacher's very nice and witty, too. I bet he's glad to have such a smart student. Dussel is in a turmoil, and we don't know why. It all began with Dussel saying nothing when he was upstairs. He didn't exchange so much as a word with either Mr. or Mrs. Van Damme. We all noticed it. This went on for a few days, and then Mother took the opportunity to warn him about Mrs. Van Dien, who could make life miserable for him. Dussel said Mr. Van Dien had started his silent treatment and he had no intention of breaking it. I should explain that yesterday was November 16th, the first anniversary of his living in the Annex. Mother received a plant in honour of the occasion, but Mrs. Van Dien, Who had alluded to the date for weeks and made no bones about the fact that she thought do so should treat us to dinner received nothing instead of making use of the opportunity to thank us for the first time for unselfishly taking him in he didn't utter a word and on the morning of the 16th when i asked him whether i should offer him my congratulations or my condolences he replied that either one would do mother having cast herself in the role of peacemaker, made no headway whatsoever, and the situation finally ended in a draw. I can say without exaggeration that do has definitely got a screw loose. We often laugh to ourselves because he has no memory, no fixed opinions, and no common sense. He's amused us more than once by trying to pass on the news he's just heard, since the message invariably gets garbled in transmission. Furthermore, he answers every reproach or accusation with a load of fine promises, which he never manages to keep. The spirit of a man is great. How puny are his deeds. Yours, M. Saturday, November 27, 1943. Dearest Kitty, last night, just as I was falling asleep, Nellie suddenly appeared before me. I saw her there, dressed in wraps, her face thin and worn. She looked at me with such sadness and reproach in her enormous eyes that I could read the message in them. Oh, Anne, why have you deserted me? Help me. Help me. Rescue me from this hell. And I can't help her. I can only stand by and watch while other people suffer and die. All I can do is pray to God to bring her back to us. I saw her Nelly and no one else, and I understood why. I misjudged her wasn't mature enough to understand how difficult it was for her. She was devoted to her girlfriend, and it must have seemed as though I were trying to take her away. The poor thing. I must have felt awful. I know, because I recognised the feeling in myself. I had an occasional flash of understanding, but then got selfishly wrapped up again in my own problems and pleasures. It was mean of me to treat her that way, and now she was looking at me, oh so helplessly, with her pale face and beseeching eyes. If only I could help her, Dear God, I have everything I could wish for, while faith has her in its deadly clutches. She was as devout as I am, maybe even more so, and she too wanted to do what was right. But then why have I been chosen to live? while well, she's probably going to die. What's the difference between us? Why are we now so far apart? To be honest, I hadn't thought of her for months. No, for at least a year. I hadn't forgotten her entirely, and yet it wasn't until I saw her before me that I thought of all her suffering. Oh, Hermione, I thought that if you live to the end of the war and return to us, I'll be able to take you in and make up for the wrong I've done you. But even if I were ever in a position to help, she won't need it more than she does now. I wonder if she ever thinks of me and what she's feeling. The merciful God comfort her, so that at least she won't be alone. Oh, if only you could tell her I'm thinking of her with compassion and love it might help her go on. I've got to stop dwelling on this. It won't get me anywhere. I keep seeing her enormous eyes and they haunt me. Does Haneli really and truly believe in God or has religion merely been foisted upon her? I don't even know that. I never took the trouble to ask. Hennelly, Haneli, if only I could take you away. If only I could share everything I have with you it's too late. I can't help or undo the wrong I've done, but I'll never forget her again and I'll always pray for her. Yours, Anne, Monday, December 6th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, the closer it got to St. Nicholas Day, the more we all fought back to last year's festively decorated basket. More than anyone, I thought it would be terrible to skip a celebration this year. After long deliberation, I finally came up with an idea, something funny. I consulted Pim, and a week ago we set to work writing a verse for each person. Sunday evening at a quarter to eight, we trooped upstairs carrying the big laundry basket, which had been decorated with cutouts and bowls made of pink and blue carbon paper. On top was a large piece of brown wrapping paper with a note attached. Everyone was rather amazed at the sheer size of the gift. I removed the note and read it aloud. Once again, St. Nicholas Day has even come to our hideaway. It won't be quite as fun, I fear, as the happy day we had last year. Then we were hopeful, no reason to doubt, that optimism would win the bout, And by the time this year came round, we'd all be free and safe and sound. Still, let's not forget it's St. Nicholas Day, though we've nothing left to give away. We'll have to find something else to do, so everyone please look in their shoe. As each person took their own shoe out of the basket, there was a roar of laughter. Inside each shoe was a little wrapped package addressed to its owner. Yours, Anne. Dearest Kitty, a bad case of flu has prevented me from writing to you until today. Being sick here is dreadful. With every cough, I had to duck under the blanket once, twice, three times, and try to keep from coughing any more. Most of the time, the tickle refused to go away. So I had to drink milk with honey, sugar or cough drops. I get dizzy just thinking about all the cures I've been subjected to. Sweating out the fever, steam treatment, wet compressors, dry compressors, hot drinks, swabbing my throat, lying still, heating pad, hot water bottles, lemonade, and every two hours the thermometer. Will these remedies really make you better? The worst part was when Mr. Dussel decided to play doctor and lay his formated head on my bare chest to listen to the sounds. Not only does his head tickle, but I was embarrassed, even though he went to school 30 years ago and does have some kind of medical degree. Why should he lay his head on my heart? After all, he's not my boyfriend. For that matter, he won't be able to tell a healthy sound from an unhealthy one. He'd have to have his ears cleaned first since he's becoming alarmingly hard of hearing. But enough about my illness. I'm fit as a fiddle again. I've grown almost half an inch and gained two pounds. I'm pale, but itching to get back to my books. By way of exception, we're all getting on well together. No squabbles, though that probably won't last long. There hasn't been such peace and quiet in this house for at least six months. Beb is still in isolation. But any day now, her sister will no longer be contagious. For Christmas, we're getting extra cooking oil, candy and molasses. For Hanukkah, Mr. Dusso gave Mrs. Fandan and Mother a beautiful cake which he'd asked Meep to bake, on top of all the work she has to do. Margaret and I received a brooch made up of a penny, all bright and shiny. I can't really describe it, but it's lovely. I also have a Christmas present for Meep and Beb. For a whole month I've saved up the sugar I put on my hot cereal, and Mr. Clayman has used it to have fondant made. The weather is drizzly and overcast, the stove stings, and the food lies heavily on our stomachs, producing a variety of rumbles. The war is at an end pass. Spirits are low. Yours, Anne. Friday, December twenty seventh, nineteen forty three. Dear Kitty, as I've written you many times before, Moods have a tendency to affect us quite a bit here, and in my case it's been getting worse lately. A famous line from Goethe, On top of the world or in the depths of despair, certainly applies to me. I'm on top of the world when I think of how fortunate we are and compare myself to other Jewish children and in the depths of despair when, for example, Mrs. Clayman comes by and talks about Yopis hockey club, canoe trips, school plays and afternoon teas with friends. I don't think I'm jealous of Yopi, but I long to have a really good time for once and to laugh so hard it hurts. We're stuck in this house like lepers, especially during winter and the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Actually, I shouldn't even be writing this since it makes me seem so ungrateful, but I can't keep everything to myself. So I'll repeat what I said at the beginning. Paper is more patient than people. Whenever someone comes in from outside, With the wind in their clothes and the cold on their cheeks, I feel like burying my head under the blankets to keep from thinking, when will we be allowed to breathe fresh air again? I can't do that. On the contrary, I have to hold my head up high and put a bold face on things, but the thoughts keep coming anyway. Not just once, but over and over. Believe me, if you've been shut up for a year and a half, it can get to be too much for you sometimes. But feelings can't be ignored no matter how unjust or ungrateful they seem. I long to ride a bike, dance, whistle, look at the world, feel young and know that I'm free, and yet I can't let it show. Just imagine what would happen if all eight of us were to feel sorry for ourselves or walk around with the discontent clearly visible on our faces. Where would that get us? I sometimes wonder if anyone will ever understand what I mean, if anyone will ever overlook my ingratitude and not worry about whether or not I'm Jewish and merely see me as a teenager badly in need of some good plain fun. I don't know, and I won't be able to talk about it with anyone, since I'm sure I'd start to cry. Crying can bring relief, as long as you don't cry alone. Despite all my theories and efforts, I miss every day and every hour of the day having a mother who understands me. That's why with everything I do and write, I imagine the kind of mom I'd like to be to my children later on, the kind of mom who doesn't take everything people say too seriously, and who does take me seriously. I find it difficult to describe what I mean, but the word mom says it all. Do you know what I've come up with? In order to give me the feeling of calling my mother something that sounds like mom, I often call her "mumsy." Sometimes I shorten it to "mums." An imperfect mum, I wish I could honour her by removing the S. It's a good thing she doesn't realise this, since it would only make her unhappy. Well, that's enough of that. My writing has raised me somewhat from the depths of despair. Yours, Anne. It's the day after Christmas, and I can't help thinking about Pim and the story he told me this last year. I didn't understand the meaning of his words then as well as I do now. If only he'd bring it up again. I might be able to show him I understood what he meant. I think Pym told me because he, who knows the intimate secrets of so many others, needed to express his own feelings for once. Pym never talks about himself, and I don't think Margaret has any inkling of what he's been through. Poor Pym. He can't fool me into thinking he's forgotten that girl. He never will. It's made him very accommodating, since he's not blind to mother's faults. I hope I'm going to be a little like him, without having to go through what he has. And Monday, December 27th, 1943. Friday evening, for the first time in my life, I received a Christmas present. Mr. Clayman, Mr. Kugler, and the girls had prepared a wonderful surprise for us. Me made a delicious Christmas cake with "Peace 1944 written on top and Bette provided a batch of cookies that was up to pre-war standards. That was a jar of yogurt for Peter, Margaret, and me, and a bottle of beer for each of the adults. And once again, everything was wrapped so nicely with pretty pictures glued to the packages. For the rest, the holidays passed by quickly for us. N. Wednesday, December 29, 1943 I was very sad again last night. Grandma and Haneli came to me once more. Grandma, oh, my sweet grandma, How little we understood what she suffered, how kind she always was, and what an interest she took in everything that concerned us, and to think that all that time she was carefully guarding her terrible secret. Grandma was always so loyal and good. She would never have let any of us down. Whatever happened, no matter how much I misbehaved, Grandma always stuck up for me. Grandma, did you love me, or did you not understand me either? I don't know. How lonely Grandma must have been, in spite of us. You can be lonely, even when you've loved by many people, since you're still not anybody's one and only. And Haneli, is she still alive, what she's doing? Dear God, watch over her and bring her back to us. Haneli, you're a reminder of what my fate might have been. I keep seeing myself in your place. So why am I often miserable about what goes on here? Shouldn't I be happy, contented, and glad, except when I'm thinking of Haneli and those suffering long with her? I'm selfish and cowardly. Why do I always think and dream the most awful things and want to scream in terror? Because in spite of everything, I still don't have enough faith in God. He's given me so much, which I don't deserve. And yet each day I make so many mistakes. Thinking about the suffering of those you hold dear can reduce you to tears. In fact, you could spend a whole day crying. The most you can do is pray for God to perform a miracle and save at least some of them and I hope I'm doing enough of that. N. Thursday, December 30th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, since the last raging quarrels, things have settled down here, not only between ourselves, do so and upstairs, but also between Mr. and Mrs. Van D. Nevertheless, a few dark thunderclouds are heading this way, and all because of food. Mrs. Fandy came up with the ridiculous idea of frying fewer potatoes in the morning and saving them for later in the day. Mother and Duso and the rest of us didn't agree with her, so now we're dividing up the potatoes as well. It seems the fats and oils aren't being doled out fairly, and Mother's going to have to put a stop to it. I'll let you know if there are any interesting developments. For the last few months now, we've been splitting up the meat, the soup, the potatoes, the extras, and now the fried potatoes too. If only we could split up completely. Yours, Anne. P.S. Beb had a picture postcard of the entire royal family copied for me. Juliana looks very young, and so does the Queen. The three little girls are adorable. It was incredibly nice of Beb, don't you think? Sunday, January 2nd, 1944. Dearest Kitty, This morning, when I had nothing to do, I leafed through the pages of my diary and came across so many letters dealing with the subject of mother in such strong terms that I was shocked. I said to myself, Anne, is that really you talking about hate? Oh, Anne, how could you? I continued to sit with the open book in my hand and wonder why I was filled with so much anger and hate that I had to confide it all to you. I tried to understand the end of last year and make apologies for her because as long as I leave you with these accusations and don't attempt to explain what prompted them, my conscience won't be clear. I was suffering then from moods that kept my head underwater and allowed me to see things only from my own perspective without calmly considering what the others, those whom I, with my mercurial temperament, had heard or offended, had said, and then acting as they would have done. I hid inside myself, thought of no one but myself, and calmly wrote down all my joy, sarcasm, and sorrow in my diary. Because this diary has become a kind of memory book. It seems a great deal to me, but I could easily write over and done with on many of its pages. I was furious at Mother. It's true. She didn't understand me, but I didn't understand her either, because she loved me. She was tender and affectionate, but because of the difficult situations I put her in, and the sad circumstances in which she found herself. She was nervous and irritable, so I can understand why she was often short with me. I was offended, took it far too much to heart and was insolent and beastly to her, which in turn made her unhappy. We were caught in a vicious cycle of unpleasantness and sorrow, not a very happy period for either of us, but at least it's coming to an end. I didn't want to see what was going on and I felt very sorry for myself but that's understandable too. Those violent outbursts on paper are simply expressions of anger that, in normal life, I could have worked off by locking myself in the room and stamping my foot a few times or calling mother names behind her back. The period of tearfully passing judgment on mother is over. I've grown wiser and mother's nerves are a bit steadier. Most of the time, I manage to hold my tongue when I'm annoyed, and she does too. So on the surface, we seem to be getting along better but there's one thing I can't do, and that's to love mother with the devotion of a child. I soothe my conscience with the thought that it's better for unkind words to be down on paper than for mother to have to carry them around in her heart. Yours, Anne. Thursday, January 6, 1944. Dearest Kitty, Today, I have two things to confess. It's going to take a long time, but I have to tell them to someone, and you're the most likely candidate, since I know you'll keep a secret no matter what happens. The first is about mother. As you know, I've frequently complained about her and then tried my best to be nice. I've suddenly realised what's wrong with her. Mother has said that she sees us more as friends than as daughters. That's all very nice, of course, except that a friend can't take the place of a mother. I need my mother to set a good example and be a person I can respect. But in most matters, she's an example of what not to do. I have the feeling that Margaret thinks so differently about these things that she'd never be able to understand what I've just told you. And father avoids all conversations having to do with mother. I imagine a mother as a woman who, first and foremost, possesses a great deal of tact, especially toward her adolescent children, and not one who, like Mumsy, pokes fun at me when I cry, not because I'm in pain, but because of other things. This may seem trivial, but there's one incident I've never forgiven her for. It happened one day when I had to go to the dentist. Mother and Margaret planned to go with me and agreed I should take my bicycle. When the dentist was finished and we were back outside, Margaret and mother very sweetly informed me that they were going downtown to buy or look at something. I don't remember what, and of course I wanted to go along. But they said I couldn't come because I had my bike with me. Tears of rage rushed to my eyes, and Margaret and Mother began laughing at me. I was so furious that I stuck my tongue out at them right there on the street. A little old lady happened to be passing by, and she looked terribly shocked. I rode my bike home and must have cried for hours. Strangely enough, even though Mother has wounded me thousands of times, this particular wound still stings whenever I think of how angry I was. I find it difficult to confess the second one because it's about myself. I'm not prudish, Kitty, and yet every time they give a blow-by-blow account of their trips to the bathroom, which they often do, my whole body rises in revolt. Yesterday, I read an article on blushing by Sis Haston. It was as if she addressed it directly to me. Not that I blush easily, but the rest of the article did reply. What she basically says is that during puberty girls withdraw into themselves and begin thinking about the wondrous changes taking place in their bodies. I feel that too, which probably accounts for my recent embarrassment over Margaret, mother and father. On the other hand, Margaret is a lot shyer than I am, and yet she's not in the least embarrassed. I think that what's happening to me is so wonderful. And I don't just mean the changes taking place on the outside of my body, but also those on the inside. I never discuss myself or any of these things with others, which is why I have to talk about them to myself. Whenever I get my period, I have the feeling that in spite of all the pain, discomfort and mess, I'm carrying around a sweet secret. So even though it's a nuisance, in a certain way I'm always looking forward to the time when I'll feel that secret inside me once again. Sis Haster also writes that girls my age feel very insecure about themselves and are just beginning to discover that they're individuals with their own ideas, thoughts, and habits. i just turned 13 when I came here, so I started thinking about myself and realized that I've become an independent person sooner than most girls. Sometimes, when I lie in bed at night, I feel a terrible urge to touch my breasts and listen to the quiet, steady beating of my heart unconsciously I had these feelings even before I came here once when I was spending the night at Jack's I could no longer restrain my curiosity about her body which she'd always hidden from me and which I'd never seen I asked her whether as proof of our friendship we could touch each other's breasts Jack refused I also had a terrible desire to kiss her which I did every time I see a female nude such as Venus in my art history book I go into ecstasy Sometimes I find them so exquisite I have to struggle to hold back my tears. If only I had a girlfriend. Diphtheria. Diphtheria. Now, a serious infectious disease that causes fever and difficulty breathing and swallow. Pomaded. Pomaded. Adjective. Having or denoting hair dressed with pomade. And pass. And pass. Now, the situation in which no progress is possible, especially because of disagreement, a deadlock.